Hello everyone and welcome to this month's 3PB Employment Case Law Update. I'm Mark Green. And I'm Sarah Bowen. Uh, we are going to talk to you today about three different cases uh, following up our newsletter that hopefully will have popped into your inbox uh, this month. Uh, these three cases cover trade union detriment, uh, those respondents who live outside the UK in relation to disclosure, and also uh, claimants who live or work outside the UK and whether they can sue in Great Britain. Uh, we're going to start with a case called UCL and Brown. So what area of law does this cover? Well, this is the trade union detriment claim. And uh, the claimant was basically a trade union officer working for UCL. What actually happened in the case? Well, it was, a, it was a quite a common situation, actually, where UCL has, in various departments, uh, email addresses which go to the whole department. And what you can do is, if you are able to send to that email address, you basically immediately send to 100 colleagues. Uh, that was quite useful for some employees, but particularly useful for the claimant who as a TU rep often wanted to send mail shots out to uh, people in his department. But UCL decided that they didn't want this to continue, not him particularly, but they didn't want the email address to continue without moderation. So I guess stopping people from spamming and uh, sending emails about uh, their sponsorship or something like that. Uh, so what they did was they decided to continue with uh, a slightly different email address, but make it the subject of moderation. But they also put into place a, a second email address, which wasn't moderated, but it was opt-in. So that meant that didn't go to all staff automatically. Uh, the claimant wasn't very happy about this. And what he did was that he actually set up or got IT to set up. A, a new email address, which was the same as the original email address, so automatically going to everyone and unmoderated. Uh, unsurprisingly, UCL weren't very happy about this. They instructed him to delete it. He said no, uh, and then they deleted it anyway. So as a result of that, uh, he was disciplined, although not dismissed. He just got a oral warning in the circumstances. So what type of claims did the claimant bring? Well, as I said, because he wasn't dismissed, uh, he could only bring a detriment claim and he brought a detriment claim that he had been penalised for undertaking trade union activities. That is to say, the setting up and the refusal to delete the email address was a trade union activity in of itself. So just as a refresher, what legislation would the claimant rely on for such a claim? Yes, he, he uh, relied on Section 146 of uh, Tolka 1992. So that's the basically the statute that deals with trade union detriments and dismissals. Uh, this is action short of dismissal. And it's quite similar to the sort of detriment we get in uh, whistleblowing or other uh, discrimination cases. Uh, the question was, was the sanction, in this case, the oral warning, given for the sole or main purpose of penalising him for undertaking trade union activities. So what happened in the Employment Tribunal? Well, the Employment Tribunal accepted actually quite easily uh, the fact that, it seems, the fact that setting up and refusing to delete the email address was taking part in trade union activities, I guess, because 
uh, it was in order to be able to send out trade union emails. But then when it came on to the question of whether it was the sole or main purpose, the question was a bit more tricky because uh, the respondent argued that the way in which he had done it, like, so the manner of uh, delete, not refusing to delete because he was in breach of a direct instruction was the reason for uh, giving in the warning rather than the fact that he actually did it himself. Uh, but the, uh, the employment tribunal didn't accept that and they found that there had been a detriment in those circumstances. So what happened in the employment tri appeals tribunal? Well, the employment appeals tribunal dismissed the appeal. Uh, it uh, held that the ET had been uh, perfectly proper in finding that the claim had been made out because particularly the refusal to delete was taking part in trade union activities. But the uh, interesting point for our uh, purposes is that the EAT looked at this question of manner. It's something that, as you know, Sarah, it's something that comes up in uh, other cases where someone is dismissed, for example, for uh, a projected disclosure. And the question is whether it was the way they did it, so screaming it to everyone, or the fact that they'd actually done it. It can be quite difficult to separate. What the Employment Appeal Tribunal said in these sort of cases is that the act itself must be genuinely separable. So they gave examples of uh, things which are wholly unreasonable, extraneous or malicious. Uh, they didn't say that was a test that had to be passed, but they basically were saying that the threshold is high if one is going to try and stop someone from having the protection of this rule. So it means that even something that is unreasonable or ill-judged might not be enough to uh, defend such a claim. That's interesting. What do, what do you think that might mean for employers in that situation then? Well, I, I think we, we've known this in relation to whistleblowing, but uh, it really it was worth highlighting here that it's basically, the EAT is basically saying, just be careful in circumstances where you are trying to discipline someone because of the way they have done something. Uh, employers should be really cautious in doing that and also should be very clear in the, all the uh, information that they provide to the claimant at the time as to why that person is being uh, disciplined. Thanks, Mark. Um, so moving on from the EAT to the Court of Appeal, we have the case of Sarnov and YZ, um, which is a decision relating to the powers of the employment tribunal to make disclosure orders. Yes. Uh, tell me a bit about that, Sarah. What were, what were the facts in that case? So a sexual harassment claim was brought in the tribunal against Harvey Weinstein and other respondents, including Mr Sarnov. Uh, at the material time, Mr Sarnov was an independent representative on the board of the Weinstein Company Holdings LLC, which is the US parent company of the Weinstein Company LLC. Um, the claimant, YZ, claimed to be employed either by the Weinstein Company LLC or a UK subsidiary. That is yet to be determined by the tribunal. She brought claims under the Equality Act before the Employment Tribunal against the companies, Harvey Weinstein, Mr Sarnov and a number of other individuals. The claimant's case against Mr Sarnov um, is that by failing to prevent Mr Weinstein's conduct, he knowingly helped him commit sexual harassment within the meaning of the aiding contraventions, which Mark, you'll know, 
uh, are set out under section 112 of the Equality yeah, Act. And not used very often, actually, are they? No, not at all. So it's an interesting case. Um, but this particular decision relates to YZ's application for disclosure against Mr. Sarnoff, who is situated in the USA. I see. So he, he's outside the jurisdiction. What, what are the relevant ET rules and principles in those circumstances? Well, the, the starting point um, is the Employment Tribunal Rules of Procedure that all practitioners will be obviously very familiar with, but in particular two rules. So the most common rule relied upon is Rule 29, which is the tribunal's general power to make case management orders. And um, it provides that the tribunal may at any stage in the proceedings on its own initiative or on an application make a case management order. The particular powers identified in the rules that follow Rule 29 um, are expressly said not to restrict that general power. So we have a very wide ability of the tribunal to make case management orders. In addition to that, Rule 31 um, is a disclosure provision uh, that provides that the tribunal may order any person in Great Britain, so those are the important words in this case, to disclose documents or information to a party um, or to allow a party to inspect such material as might be ordered by a county court or in Scotland by a sheriff. So those are the primary mark relevant uh, provisions. I see. And so in this case, how did that apply in the ET and the EAT? So at a preliminary hearing, YZ sought disclosure from Mr. Sarnov. As I said, he was living and working in California and had not at any material time been in Great Britain. He therefore argued that the tribunal simply did not have the power to order disclosure against him. He relied on Rule 31 and the fact that therefore disclosure could only be ordered in his argument against a party who is in Great Britain. He wasn't in Great Britain and argued that on no interpretation could he be deemed to be in Great Britain and therefore no disclosure order could be made against him. On behalf of YZ, it was primarily argued that the tribunal naturally did have the power to make a disclosure order because he was a party and Rule 29 allows uh, for general case management, which must logically cover the ability to order disclosure against a party in proceedings. Employment Judge Taylor and the Employment Tribunal granted the claimant's application for disclosure. And in the EAT, they also upheld that order, albeit for slightly different reasons. Um, Mr. Sarnoff wasn't happy and appealed to the Court of Appeal. I see. Interesting. It seems. I mean, it's. It does seem quite quite a uh, novel argument to say that a party doesn't have to give disclosure. Did the uh, Did the Court of Appeal agree with the EAT? Well, I think your observation's spot on, Mark, because actually the, the Court of Appeal did agree that the order could be made. So Mr. Sarnoff's um, appeal was rejected. Its direct route to that conclusion was to say that the right to order disclosure arises from Rule 29 and actually Rule 31 didn't apply in this case because they said that that applies to disclosure against non-parties. Mr Sarnov is a respondent in the proceedings, so therefore is covered by Rule 29. Therefore, the words in Great Britain actually didn't matter in this case. 
Rule 29 doesn't refer to in Great Britain. It's a very general power that the tribunal has. So, um, but the reason I say that your observation is very good, Mark, is because part of the reasoning in the Court of Appeal um, relied on observations that it wouldn't really be in accordance with the overriding objective for yes. a respondent to be outside of Great Britain and therefore not be subject to any disclosure orders. And a lot of observations and comments were made in the Court of Appeal about that. Yeah, I guess it could mean you could, as soon as you get a claim through the post, you get on a plane and leave the country. Well, yeah, quite. Um, it, it can be, disclosure can be quite prickly in the ETI, I know certainly from my experience, and the rules don't seem to be as uh, specific as they are in the CPR, for example. Is that, is that right? Yeah, I mean, it's right to say, isn't it, that Rule 29 and Rule 31 are obviously not as detailed as the CPR when it comes to disclosure, because the CPR is very prescriptive in what it covers. Um, and th there has been a few cases on this point, but effectively the, the powers of the tribunal are, should reflect the powers of the county court. So on this point, Underhill actually said in the Court of Appeal that it's wrong to view the employment tribunal rules through the prism of the CPR because they don't attempt to set out comprehensively the kinds of order that the tribunal can make, whereas the CPR do try to do that. So it's not a like-for-like comparison that should be undertaken the point is the, the tribunal's got a great degree of scope and they should be able to make the orders that the county court can make interestingly I should be aware uh, there was a case recently on specific disclosure in the employment tribunal uh, so Santander UK PLC um, and Barrage um, in the context of an application for specific disclosure, it was confirmed that the disclosure order can't go beyond what is allowed under the CPR. And in fact, the same test as appears in the CPR should be applied by the tribunal. I see. So, so basically, does that mean that the, uh, you look at the employment tribunal rules, but if there's any question about going outside of the CPR, you can't do that? Yeah, effectively. But of course, that no doubt would be a big area for debate and submissions in the ETA. Of course. Yes, absolutely. Uh, thank you. That is interesting. And also uh, perhaps gives a bit more uh, understanding as to these cases where colleagues or we try and use the CPR uh, over the employment tribunal rules. Now, now, Mark, you're going to talk about a case that talks about claimants rather than respondents, as was the case in Sarnoff, who are outside of the UK. Yeah, that's right. I mean, I, it, it's not quite the same, but uh, as you said, the uh, Sarnoff is going to have to go on to decide whether it has jurisdiction to deal with claims against certain respondents. In this case, Crew Employment Services, Camelot and Gould. This was all about situations in which the claimant rather than the respondent is uh, outside, works outside of Great Britain or lives outside of Great Britain and whether the employment tribunal has jurisdiction in those circumstances. So what happened in the case? Well, Mr Gould, lucky man, uh, was a captain of a super yacht and spent his winter months uh, in the Caribbean. Uh, the summer months he was in uh, the UK uh, in well, in UK waters, I should say, and that was about 50% of his time. Uh, he was employed by the respondent who was based in Guernsey, and specifically, and importantly for this case, uh, the contract of employment 
was governed by Guernsey law, was sent to govern by Guernsey law. Uh, he was uh, paid his salary in euros, and that was paid into a US account. It's quite complicated. He was resident in Florida, and uh, he was uh, dismissed uh, for gross misconduct. And he tried to bring a claim in, uh, in England. Uh, and the question was whether or not the Employment Tribunal had jurisdiction to entertain his claim. Could you give us a, a brief overview of the law on these issues? Yes, well, for, for the moment, or certainly in this case, we, we start with European law. Uh, that, of course, may change as time goes forward in relation to Brexit. But the uh, main regulation is called Brussels Recast. It sounds odd, but it's Brussels Recast. And uh, the employer, it says, can be sued in the state where it is domiciled, which makes sense, of course, or it can also be sued in another uh, member state, so that's EU state, if that is where the employee habitually carries out his work, or in those circumstances where someone doesn't habitually carry out their work in one country, they're, they're peripatetic and walk, go around a lot, uh, in the country where the business that employs him is situated. Uh, what's really key about Brussels Recast is that one of the recitals to it says that it should be construed generously, basically not to limit people's ability to bring claims. Uh, there's a couple of quite useful e, uh, ECJ cases uh, that deal with this. One is the case of Weber and Universal Ogden Services. And that is about where the employee habitually works. Uh, there they said that the court should look at where he worked the longest over his employment, unless the subject matter of the dispute, so for example, harassment or dismissal, was closely connected to a place of work which is in a different country, in which case he may be able to bring the claim there. Uh, the case of uh, Noguera uh, and Crew Link Limited was about cabin crew. And there the ECJ found that it wasn't just a question of saying where the cabin crew's home base was. It said habitually carrying out work meant the place where or from which the employee performs the essential part of his duties vis-a-vis -vis his employer. Uh, then coming to UK law, finally, there was quite a useful case called Revisi and Simmons and Simmons. And that re specifically refers to ERA jurisdiction, of course, uh, means that even with Brexit, this should still apply. And there helpfully set out three categories of employees. The first is those who at the relevant time or in the relevant period are working in Great Britain, so no problem there, they can bring a claim. Uh, the second is those who work outside Great Britain. And for those people, there's a presumption against jurisdiction unless there are exceptional reasons uh, to do it. That wasn't the case here either. Uh, the case here was the third category where employees who work and live partly in the UK want to bring a claim. Uh, for those employees, the test is a lower test than exceptional, and they need to sh show what is called a sufficiently strong connection to the UK. So what did the EAT say? Well, the EAT found that the ET had not, in fact, erred. Uh, it correctly applied the test of the place where the employee performs the essential parts of his duties. Uh, it, they looked at the facts there as well, and they said it was key that the ET had found that the claimant was in the UK more than anywhere else. 
it was also relevant, uh, the AAT found, that Mr. Borodin, the wealthy owner of the yacht, even though he wasn't the respondent, was the one giving instructions and he was in control of Mr. Gould and based in the UK. And that was uh, relevant to the consideration. Uh, the EAT also commented quite helpfully, I think, that you need to look at the, or it's, it's relevant, I should say, to look at the absence of close links to other jurisdictions, basically preventing a situation in which someone just can't claim anywhere. Uh, and there they looked at whether it was an error which had been claimed by the respondent. There was, it was an error to find that there was only a slight connection to Guernsey. They said, uh, even though the, uh, uh, the contract was said to be uh, under Guernsey law, it was okay to say that there was a slight connection in those circumstances, especially given that the yacht actually never went to uh, Guernsey at all. So what do you think the lessons are from this case? Well, I think there's three main takeaways from this, and it is, it's really quite a useful uh, setting out of the case law in this area. Firstly, uh, when looking at jurisdiction, remember that there's likely to be a generous interpretation if someone's trying to bring a claim in the Employment Tribunal in England and Wales. Uh, of course, we'll see if Brexit changes uh, Brussels recast and if, it, uh, if, the, if new case law comes in, but that's where we are at the moment. Uh, secondly, there's always going to be an intense consideration of the reality of the case. So uh, an agreement in a contract to submit to a particular jurisdiction like Guernsey will be relevant, but it might not have much weight, a weight at all. And the final point is that if someone spends more time in the UK than anywhere else, even if that's not the majority of the time, that is, may well be a factor in favour of jurisdiction applying and a case being able to go ahead. Brilliant. Thanks, Mark. It doesn't come up that often, but it's very useful to be aware of this. Yeah, I, I agree. Yes. And, and again, it, it's, it's not something that certainly I've had uh, for a number of years, uh, but it's useful that the EAT has really set things out quite clearly in this case. Uh, that, that's it for today. There is another case that uh, Karen Moss kindly did a uh, very helpful summary of in relation to the just and equitable test. That's in the newsletter. It's called Adadeji. Please have a look at that. It just remains for me to say to uh, thank you to Sarah, uh, to Karen Moss and Andrew McPhail for their newsletter uh, summaries. And of course, uh, to you for tuning in. Until the next time.